You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics, and we've got a great show lined up for today. One of my favorite guests is back in the hot seat again here, and in fact, he is the first one to be on the show three times here. This is his third appearance, and that's Mike Lacona, who is he? He has a PhD in New Testament Studies from the University of Pretoria which he completed with distinction. He serves as Associate Professor in Theology at Houston Baptist University. He was interviewed by Lee Strober in his book, The Case for Real Jesus, and appeared in Strober's video, The Case for Christ. He's the author of numerous books, including The Resurrection of Jesus, A New Historiographical Approach from IVP Academic in 2010, and Paul Meets Muhammad from Baker in 2006, and co-author of Gary Habermas of the award-winning book The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus from Crago in 2004. He's also a co-editor with William Dembski of Evidence for God, 50 Arguments for Faith from the Bible, History, Philosophy, and Science, and that's from Baker in 2010. He's a member of the Evangelical Philosophical Society, the Institute for Biblical Research, and the Society of Biblical Literature, and he's spoken on more than 50 university campuses and has appeared on dozens of radio and television programs, including this one. So, uh, Mike, welcome back. Well, thanks, Nick. Glad to be on again. And uh, many people know that uh, normally I refer to my guests as Dr. So-and-so, but I usually refer to you in more common terms in that because of our relationship. Because after all, I tell people, you're one of the few people who I can say to the show, welcome to the show, Dad. <laughs> All right, son. Well, glad to be on. <laughs> yeah, and, and for those who who are wondering, okay, why is he saying that? The reason is that uh, your daughter and I are husband and wife together. Yep, that is true. Glad to have you as a son-in-law, too. I'm really proud of you. Thank you. Now, let's suppose, oh, that there's someone who's listening, and this is the first time they've heard of you, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing? Well, um, I'll be 54 in a couple of days here, and I grew up in Baltimore and uh, became a Christian at the age of 10. Uh, went, went to a uh, Christian university, Liberty University, where I was a music major. I played saxophone at the time and then went to grad school because by then, um, although I, I loved playing the sax, it um my my love for studying the New Testament uh, was just growing uh, and just in time surpassed it. So I wanted to get more in-depth in New Testament studies. I wanted to study the New Testament in its original language. So that's what I focused on, learning the language. I took all the courses I could that they offered, plus um, they had several independent studies for me. So I have the equivalent of five years uh, of graduate-level courses in Greek. Um Toward the end of my graduate education, I was doubting my faith. It wasn't any particular argument. I mean, I was in a Christian university. I didn't even have a whole lot of 
exposure to uh, skeptical arguments. But I just started asking myself, you know, how do I know that this is really true rather than this is the way I was brought up to believe? And um, uh, one of my roommates recommended I see Gary Habermas, said he was really approachable. I found that to be the case. Gary helped me with my doubts at that point. But they came back later, and that's what led, really led me into apologetics and Christian apologetics, seeking the answers. Um, by the time I was in my early 40s, I wanted to go for a doctorate, so I enrolled in a Ph.D. program and um, wanted to study the resurrection uh, using historical method, uh, which really hadn't been done on a comprehensive basis before. It had been done on a, a smaller basis uh, by a professional historian like Paul Meyer, I really wanted to get in depth and go really deep into this. And so um, that's what I pursued. And it, it, it wasn't long into the program that um, as I was reading professional historians, they were saying there's no such thing as an unbiased historian. And we have to do our best to distance ourselves from our desired outcomes while our investigation proceeds. And I realized that this was going to be a handicap for me. And it's a handicap for anyone. And uh, as a Christian, I was biased. I had my own desired outcomes. I wanted to prove Jesus rose from the dead. And so that really uh, struck a chord with me. And I wanted to make this because, you know, as I I freely said publicly, I tend to have doubts um, and struggle with them, always have. And uh, it's not just my faith. It's everything. I'm a second guesser. I'm a triple guesser. Um, it's just one of my idiosyncrasies, and so I wanted this to a, a good historical, solid historical investigation to help me with those doubts. But I knew in order to do that, I need to do it with the greatest amount of integrity that that I could give it. So um, that's what led me into this investigation of the resurrection to go in deep in depth with it. My doctoral dissertation ended up being three and a half to four times the size of an, uh, the average doctoral dissertation. I was just obsessed with it. So. Um, um, yeah, so that's kind of where I'm at, and um, I really enjoy doing this stuff and really seeking to find authentic answers. And um, ended up getting involved in academic debates uh, with people who are a lot smarter than me. Uh, but um, I wanted to see how the arguments for uh, the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus would stand up to the toughest critical scrutiny, and I've been pleasantly surprised. Uh, that I, I don't think skeptical arguments can touch the resurrection of Jesus. I think it's by far the best historical explanation of the facts we know, and that's really helped my faith. I'd like to ask you about something that I heard you say on Scott Sullivan's show. He put a link up to an interview he did with you that people might find this surprising, that when you first heard about apologetics, you didn't care too much for it, did you? <laughs> that's true. That's that's very true, Nick. Um at that point, I, I remember it was my uh, senior year in college, and I had uh, two roommates who were involved in a Master of Arts in Christian Apologetics, or Philosophy in Christian Apologetics at Liberty. Smart guys, and they were talking about that, and uh, the third, I had three roommates, so two of them were in that graduate program. The other um, was uh, studying Christian Apologetics as well, and David Hume and things like this, and it just did not interest me at all. It was like, well, why do you need evidence for Christianity? I, we all know Christianity is true. I, I have this relationship with the Lord, and I'm 100% certain Christianity is true. Why do you need to study the evidence and answer all these objections? 
Uh, I just had no use for Christian apologetics at that point. We forgive you, Matt. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so it, it is something that I would be involved in that discipline later on in life. Yeah. And by the way, we should say this for Gary. If this was all done at Liberty because HBU wasn't around yet, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Now, today we've got a different format set up for the show today because... Justin Browley has had something on his program, Unbelievable, called Grill a Christian. And that's where he has a Christian guest come in and just answer questions. And you agreed to this format with me. And so I went on private groups on Facebook and such and had uh, people give me questions about the New Testament, the historical Jesus and such. And you have no clue what questions I'm about to pull out, do you? And that's that's correct. It's a little scary. <laughs> well, it, it's just like a being in a, in a forum speaking somewhere, and you don't know what question could come up, and you have to be ready for anything, right? That's correct. Now, I think a uh, first question that we should ask, and this is one that I get asked several times. So this isn't one that's one sent me, but it's a question that I'm asking, and I'm saying it in light of uh, events coming up at a. On the 24th, Allie and I are going to be celebrating five years together. How do you think she's gone so far about murdering me this whole time? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you guys are definitely made for each other, Nick. It's good to see you all together and having such a good marriage. Yeah, yeah I, I I was just thinking about how Ruth Bell Graham, the late wife of Barry Graham, was interviewed one time and said, as a Christian woman, have you ever thought about divorce? And she said, divorce? No. Murder, yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I think uh I think just about any married couple would think along those lines. Maybe not I mean of course murder is just mm -hmm. a joke there, but um I'm sure everybody who's married there comes times in their marriage where they have great regrets over the decision to marry that person. Mm -hmm. Um marriage is difficult. Mm-hmm. And we'll be talking about that some next week, but I'll give that preview at, when it comes to the halfway point. But let's get into the questions. And some of these come from Christians, some of these come from atheists. And again, for all people listening, I'm drawing these questions out random. So if your question doesn't get picked, it's nothing personal. I'm just doing this randomly. Here's your first question, Mike. John 14, 6 states, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This firmly establishes Christian particularism. How we deposit this to a postmodern individualistic culture that accepts subjective morality and religious pluralism that would lead to positive questioning and furthering a desire for scriptural engagement in the secular community? Ooh, tough question. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, when it comes down to it, there is a lot within our postmodern culture that says, you know, there are no absolutes and things like that. Mm -hmm. But people, it seems, they believe those things uh, arbitrarily. Right. So, you know, things like same-sex marriage and all that, oh, there's no real truth there. It's whatever ever you believe, and, you know, what's true for you is true for you. Mm -hmm. But, you know, try to apply that to science or mathematics or something that is uh, an ethic that is near and dear to that person's heart and and see what they have to say, mm -hmm. you know. So what do you think what do you think about racism? Um do you think racism is just a matter of what you think is right or wrong? Oh you don't? Well why not? Why doesn't it apply for that? Why do why why do 
doesn't your physics professor or your calculus professor, um, are, are you going to go to them and say the same thing? Um, okay, you say the answer to this equation is this. I say it's this. You know, can't we all just get along? What's true for you is true for you. You know, you don't say that on a calculus test. Right. It's either true or false. So it's it's whatever they want to say. So, um, you know, uh, for someone like that, I just basically said, well, I think we do what we do with anything, like whether it's physics or science or whatever. This is history, and we want to look at the evidence, and we go with the um, the position that has the most going in its favor. Mm-hmm. You're welcome to choose anything you want. If you want to think that Jesus is not the only way, you're very free to do that. But just be, be pre- prepared that if Jesus is the only way and you reject him, um, it, it doesn't matter what you believe, whether you believed in a pluralistic kind of thing. If you were wrong and Jesus is the only way and you did not put your trust in him, you're going to bear the consequences, and Jesus said that those those consequences will be eternal. Mm-hmm. So in, in that case, you know, it's, it's something you need to look at, and then you start looking at, you know, did Jesus actually teach he was the only way? And, yeah, he did. There's good evidence that he did. Okay. And this next question is along the lines of how to do history as a historian. You should really like this. My question has to do with finding the best explanation for a set of historical evidence. Bart Ehrman used to refuse to pick a theory for the evidence surrounding the resurrection. In the past, he said pretty much anything was more likely than a body being raised from the dead. I don't think this refusal is a good thing for a historian to do. In my own historical training, when writing a large paper, I would develop a preliminary explanation, or thesis, for a set of data. It guided my thinking as I kept researching and reconsidering the evidence. I don't think I could have made any real progress I had neglected to form preliminary conclusions early on. So does refusing to pick a theory, so to speak, hurt the effectiveness of a historian? Why or why not? No, I don't, I don't think it necessarily has to uh, impact your investigation in a negative manner. But if you are preloading your investigation with certain assumptions, uh, like assuming uh, that you, you uh, that a miracle would be the least probable explanation given any circumstances. Well, you're already a priori setting yourself up for excluding what might be the correct explanation. Mm-hmm. I might say, you know, to Bart or someone saying a miracle by its very expo- uh, uh, definition is the least probable explanation. I might challenge that and say, well, you know, what leads you to that conclusion? Well, it's just inherent in the definition of miracle. Well, you know, in my investigation of miracle, I found 23 different definitions. Many of them were mutually exclusive or, you know, in other words, they're incompatible with each other. So why should I accept that particular definition? As far as I know, Ehrman is the only one to give that definition. Um, so uh, I would say, well, if that's the case, you know, okay, if God exists and wanted to raise Jesus, then... Jesus' resurrection, why would that, of course it's a miracle, but if God exists and wanted to raise Jesus, why would that uh, Jesus' resurrection be the least probable explanation? It seems that, again, if God exists and wanted to raise Jesus, that his resurrection would be the most probable explanation. Mm-hmm. I could also add and say, well, um, let's look at two alternatives here. Um, Jesus' body was raised it came back to life and was totally healed um within a you know couple day period 
and it happened by entirely natural causes. And the second is that God raised Jesus from the dead. Well, unless you can show that God doesn't exist, or if he does, that he wouldn't want to raise Jesus, well, then the second is by no means impossible. Mm -hmm. You can't even say that it's really improbable. But the first one, to say that Jesus' body returned to life um, by natural causes and was completely healed, well, that is impossible. Um, that would be less likely than God raising Jesus from the dead. And so, according to Ehrman, the least probable explanation is called a miracle. So, in other words, um, God raising Jesus from the dead would be more probable, and therefore it would not be a miracle. But if Jesus was raised from the dead by natural causes, that would be a miracle because it's less probable than God raising Jesus from mm -hmm. the dead. I, I think there's all sorts of problems that we could raise with Ehrman's approach to saying that miracles are the least probable explanation. So but yeah, I think you could come at things with some hypotheses in mind. Um, but a historian is going to first look at the data and say, all right, what is our data that, that we, for which we are certain? And then you formulate numerous hypotheses. You might have your preferred hypothesis, but you, you formulate and consider numerous hypotheses. And you weigh them according to the criteria for in inference of the best explanation. You see which one explains the data better than the others, and that hypothesis should be regarded as what probably occurred. You know, I'm thinking about how uh, Richard Burridge set out to uh, show that the Gospels are not Greco-Roman biographies, and then ended up writing a groundworking book showing that, well, yeah, they actually are. Yeah, yeah, that's a good good example there, Nick. Mm -hmm. of someone who did not allow his bias to guide his investigation. So, yeah, that's a real good example. He went out with a guiding, a guiding hypothesis that the Gospels do not belong to the genre of Greco-Roman biography, but he was open-minded, neutral, or I should say he wasn't neutral, but he was objective enough in his investigation to allow his, his conclusion to be changed along the way, and he changed his mind. Mm -hmm. And as you know, his this book has, has been groundbreaking and has changed, is probably the number one work responsible for reversing the view of the community of New Testament scholars. So now that almost, you know, the large majority of them believe that the Gospels belong to the genre of Greco-Roman biography. <laughs> okay, let's go on to our next question. Why doesn't Mark report the virgin birth or other nativity stories or any sightings of Jesus after the resurrection? Well, in terms of the virgin birth and some of the others, I don't know. Um, and unfortunately, we don't have Mark around. Um, mm -hmm. I, I would say that uh, it is standard for Greco-Roman biography and not all of them, but many of them. If you just look at Plutarch's lives, you'll see that um, uh, and you read Burge's book, but it's also played out when you look at you know, the other Greco-Roman biographies, and there are about a hundred of them around the time of, you know, written within 150 years on each side of Jesus, um, that they deal very, very little with a person's childhood. What it does is talk about their ancestry um, and, you know, their, their um, yeah, their family line. Um, Matthew and Luke do talk about the virgin birth. They handle it that way. John handles it differently. They don't talk about that, but he does talk about the incarnation of Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, Mark does it a little bit differently. Um, he, he opens up by um, 
talking about Jesus and saying, hey, as the prophet Isaiah said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the Lord, make straight his paths. That's referring to Yahweh. And who is Mark referring this to, you know, relating this to? Well, it's not John the Baptist. Or John the Baptist is the one who is preparing the way for God. But who is God in this sense? According to Mark, it's Jesus. Mm-hmm. And the primary objective of a biography was to uh, give us a portrait of the character, the, who that main character of the biography is. Tell us about who this person is. What were they like? Um, and Mark is clearly saying that Jesus is divine in some sense. So he opens up and he applies the prophecy of Isaiah. He applies it to Jesus. It's, mm. Jesus stands in the place of God. That's chapter one. Chapter two he heals a, a paralytic, forgives him his sins. They say, hey, that's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Yep. You go mm-hmm. chapter three, chapter four, same kinds of stuff. Chapter, you know, uh, all through the, uh, Mark's gospel, it's stuff that points to Jesus as being uh, God in some sense. And so that's how Mark handles it. Mark talks about this ancestry of Jesus being God's son. He's uniquely divine by saying he's the fulfillment of prophecy. So he just does it differently than Matthew and Luke, and John does it differently mm-hmm. than Matthew and Luke. You know, could we also say that if Richard Balkum has made his case where that Mark is an inclusio account, and earlier church tradition says that Mark is the account of Peter, and that's who the inclusio is about, and that this is Peter's eyewitness testimony, Peter wouldn't have been around the birth of Jesus, so Mark wouldn't have included it. Well, yeah, that could be the case. I read Bauckham's, uh case for Inclusio. Inclusio was certainly done back in antiquity, as I read through um, Plutarch's Lives several times, and I know you've read through them yeah. uh, once or twice, that um, um, I can see specific instances in where Inclusio is used in Plutarch. I, I've marked a few of them where we can, it seems certain he was using that. I'm convinced that that occurs sometimes in Mark, but maybe not as often as Balcom sees. But, you know, he might see something in there I just don't see yet. Um, but, yeah, the earliest church tradition is that Peter was behind. You know, Mark got his information from Peter and the majority of New Testament scholars, a slight majority, though, but a majority nonetheless, uh, believe that early testimony and accept the traditional authorship of the Gospel of Mark and that he got it from Peter. Well, my answer is about the virgin birth. How about the appearances? Why does Mark leave those out? Well, we really don't know. There's a couple of different uh, possibilities. Number one, uh, you know, it was intentional that he left them out, and that Mark's gospel ends with chapter 16, verse 8, with the women running away and saying nothing to no one because they were they were afraid. Um, and I'll tell you, you know, there are probably as many uh, theories on uh, for for those scholars who say that Mark intended to end his gospel there, there's probably as many theories as there are New Testament scholars on why Mark ended it there and what he meant to communicate by saying that, you know, the women didn't say anything to anyone. Um, for myself, uh, that same grammatical structure, it says they ran away and they said nothing to no one that is used earlier in Mark chapter 1, verse 44, I believe it is, when Jesus heals a leper and tells him to go show himself to the priest and say nothing to no one. Mm-hmm. Um, what that means is, hey, don't stop along the way. Go straight to the priest and show yourself. 
So I think given what Mark has said in chapter one, and he's using the same grammatical structure um, in uh, in chapter 16, verse eight, um, I think the best explanation uh, for that is to say uh, that the women did go and tell the disciples, but they didn't stop and tell anyone along the way. Okay. I'm with the, the those scholars, and there are a number of them, good scholars, big scholars, who would say that um, Mark did not intend to end his gospel there, um, but rather either he was unable to complete his gospel or the ending was lost. Mm-hmm. And I have no idea which is which, uh, which one is even more probable there, but chapter 14, verse 28 uh, Jesus tells his disciples, hey, you know, I, I'm going to die, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise from the dead. And after I've r- been raised from the dead, I'm going to go ahead of you into Galilee, and we'll see you there. <clears throat> and in chapter 16, verse 7, the angel tells the women, you know, he's not here, and he's risen. Uh, but go del- tell the disciples and Peter that he's gone ahead of you, and we'll see you in Galilee, just as he said. So that plus all the uh, predictions about Jesus' death and resurrection that are peppered throughout Mark's gospel, and there are several of them, um, would seem to suggest that Mark is going to anticipate, he's going to know about these appearances. So why didn't he narrate them? We don't know. Again, it could be lost, or maybe Mark got sick or died or or was killed prior to completing the gospel. We just don't know. (laughs) Okay, let's go to the next question. Hey, let me throw one more thing in there, Nick, and that is... Paul wrote um, his letters probably before Mark wrote his gospel. Uh And Paul mentions the resurrection several times. He mentions the appearances of Jesus, of course, in 1 Corinthians 15, multiple appearances to individuals and to groups. So the appearance traditions were were known prior Hmm. to Mark writing the gospel. So it would be wrongheaded to say, uh, see, the appearance traditions come late in the other gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John, uh, Mark didn't know about it. Well, Mark would have known about them because they were early. And remember, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says he appeared to Peter, mm-hmm. then to the 12. Right. So Mark would have known this if he got his information from Peter. He would have known about the appearance to Peter. So I, I don't see any real problem. I wish Mark would have narrated them, or if, you know, if he did, that they would have survived. Um, but we don't have that. But we do have earlier reports in Paul. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, this question here is about a messianic figure mentioned in Josephus, Judas the Galilean. He claimed to be a Messiah. In what ways were his claims and circumstances similar to Jesus the Nazarene? And in which ways did they differ? I don't know enough about him um, to be able to answer that intelligently. Okay. So I'll have to pass. Hey, what? Let, let's say something about this then. What do you do if you're in a, a forum of sorts and you do get a question and you honestly don't know, but, you know, you want to say something more? I mean, what, what steps would you recommend this person take for this question? Just to admit it. <laughs> I mean, that's what I do. I, I, I don't know the answer. I, mm-hmm. I don't even have a clue on how to answer that. So I just admit it. I don't think there's any shame in that. And mm-hmm. um so okay. I, you, there's just so much to know. I mean, I, yeah. I can't yeah. even keep up with all the literature on Jesus' resurrection alone. There's just yeah. explosion of knowledge. You can't expect to be no, to know everything. Yeah, it, it's quite a mistake a lot of apologists make. I think that they think they have to be experts in everything. And even in your area of New Testament, you can't be an expert in everything. In, in very little. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, next question. What evidence is there that Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea? Why would a member of a Sanhedrin want the body of Jesus to be buried in his personal, no doubt expensive family tomb? Doesn't this sound like a bit of embellishing on the part of the disciples? I I don't think so. You mean on the part of the gospel authors? Um, I, I don't think so. I mean, after all, the gospels do talk about Joseph of Arimathea being a secret disciple of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, they were going against what he wanted in terms of crucifying Jesus. And if he really thought Jesus was the Messiah and was a follower of Jesus, then why not offer your own tomb to him mm-hmm. at that point? Why not? So mm-hmm. I, I don't find it fantastic or implausible at all. You combine that with um, Josephus uh, in Jewish Wars. I think it's book four, section 317. And in there, it talks about how... Um, a number of uh, mercenaries for the the Romans came in and they killed a lot of the Jews in Jerusalem and refused to have them buried. And it says the Jews were incensed over this. Now, this is happening around the years 67, 68, uh, a couple of years before the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And Josephus says that the Jews were incensed about this because it had been uh, the, their custom to remove the crucified and the condemned prior to sunset and give them a proper burial. Mm -hmm. So if this is the way it was in Jerusalem prior to 67, 68, then that would suggest that the Romans, contrary to their typical practice of leaving the person on the cross for days and then giving them a dishonorable burial by throwing them into a common pit, uh, that this would have been an exception that they would have made in Jerusalem, according to Josephus. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus, we can expect, would have been given a proper burial, um, not necessarily an honorable one. Right, that the king. Yeah, so I'm not saying it wasn't an honorable one. I'm just saying from Josephus, we can know that it would have at least have been a proper burial. And so therefore, I think the burial by Joseph of Arimathea, since the Gospels do say he was a follower of Jesus, um, is entirely plausible. Yeah, I, the reference I was making was to Baron McCain's where no man had been laid, and article made sure that Jesus' burial was shameful. I think even Jody Magnus at University of North Carolina Chapel Hill has said that uh, the, these accounts, they seem to be just reliable accounts, and Jody's an expert in that area. Mm. And for anyone who's interested in this question further, their heads up what's coming. We've got tentatively marked down that on August 22nd or so, show, uh, Greg Manette will be on here discussing the burial of Jesus. Now, he'll probably be able to answer everything about that, won't he? Yeah, Greg's a good guy, and he's doing his doctoral dissertation. I'm supervising it for him, mm-hmm. and um, he's doing his doctoral dissertation on the burial of Jesus. So, uh, yeah, and he's doing some good work. Okay, now this next question, yeah, I was sure a question like this would come up here, so get set, Mark. Did the events described in Matthew 27, 51-52 actually occur? It seems Matthew presents these as factual historical narrative. Are they? And if they are not, how can we tell whatever facts recorded regarding Jesus' death and resurrection are not literally true? Okay, Mike, first off, before answering this question, could you give a context? What is this person talking about for those who might not have this passage memorized or know about this debate? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Um, 
at, uh, he's talking about the the six phenomena reported by Matthew at the cruise at the death of Jesus, the darkness, the temple veil splitting uh, from top to bottom, the earthquake, the rock splitting, the raising of many dead saints, and that after Jesus resurrection, they came out and walked into the city of Jerusalem and were uh, appeared to many. So, you know, the, the question is, did these things really occur? And if they did not occur, um, how, you know, how can we distinguish between what occurred and what didn't? Well, it's a fair question. Um, I don't know. I'm skeptical of, of those, some of those. Um, and I'm not saying that they didn't happen. I'm, I'm just I'm not willing to say that they did happen. Um, My reading of the Greco-Roman and Jewish literature of the period uh, revealed numerous uh, examples of similar kind of phenomena happening. Uh, Darkness covering the earth, uh, like eclipse of the sun, Mount Etna erupting, fighting scene in the heavens. Um, And Josephus reported that when the um, just before the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., that uh, the doors to the temple, Jewish temple, which took more than 20 men to open, uh, opened by themselves. Uh, We find Cassius Dio saying the same thing um, at one point about the doors of the temple of Jupiter, which took many men to open. They just opened by themselves. Josephus talks about fighting seen in the heavens. Cassius Dio and um, I believe um, uh, Livy talk about fighting seen in the heavens, darkness. Mm-hmm. Uh, Livy and again, I believe Cassius Dio talk about uh, uh, pale phantoms seen walking around at sunset, and um, so you, you, we find a bunch of these kinds of things that are going on um, in the literature, the Greco-Roman and Jewish literature on things uh, per, matters that I think the author wanted to emphasize um, had cosmic or even divine significance to them. So the question is, was Matthew doing the same thing here? Um, and I think it's conceivable he, he was. I mean, we find him talking about the sun going dark and the moon turning into blood in his Olivet Discourse. And he's getting that from Joel chapter 2. Um, we, we find things like, I think it's Joel chapter 2. Then we find Peter in Acts chapter 2. He does refer to Joel chapter 2. Um, and he says, hey, you guys think we're drunk here at Pentecost, people speaking in tongues and prophesying. Well, no, this is what Joel the prophet spoke of, that young men will have visions, old men will have dreams, and those you know, those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, and things like that. So when you look at that text in Joel 2, it also talks about the sun going dark and stars falling out of the sky, and those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So you look at a context, and it seems pretty clear that Peter is suggesting that these things have occurred in their presence that day. But the stars didn't fall out of the sky. The moon didn't turn to blood. The sun didn't uh, uh, go dark and all of that. So um, it seems to me that Mark is using this phenomenological language, this special effects, poetic effects there, mm-hmm. um, to, to talk about events of divine significance that have taken place. It was a regime change. And that was often described in Jewish literature uh, by the sun going dark. A regime change. And so this could very well be what Matthew is signifying by these special effects. Can we know that some of them occurred and some didn't? It is really hard to tell, Nick. Mm -hmm. Um, In my studies on the subject, um, 
I was able to uh, look at a NASA website um, where uh, you can go to NASA has a website where you can go. You can uh, uh, enter a year and then you can select a geographical region and it will tell you whether there were any visible eclipses of the sun in the region that year. And um, then I've got a book written by John Ramsey, a classicist from the University of Illinois in Chicago, just recently retired. And it's a, it's a catalog of comets that are mentioned in the Greco-Roman literature for, I don't know, over like 900 years, 500 BC to 480, something like that. Bedtime reading. Yeah. It's actually, it's a pretty interesting book mm -hmm. and it provides the original text and the original language plus uh, Ramsey's English translation. And it's really interesting because on several occasions it mentions an eclipse of the sun and a comet appearing. Mm -hmm. Well, we can verify that there was a comet in that at, visible at that point, but we can also verify that there was no visible eclipse of the sun at that mm -hmm. point, right. which shows that these ancient writers could commingle special effects or poetic effects with historical um, uh, data. Mm -hmm. observations. So it's kind of hard to tell what may or may not have occurred with these phenomena mentioned in Matthew, and that was just part of the genre of the day. Mm -hmm. So at the latter part of that question, of course, would be is, well, how do we apply that to other things, you know, and no. Well, sometimes we're just not going to know the answer. Um, we're left with questions, and with two 2,000 years removed from the originals, you know, there was an otherness in the way that they wrote. They used figures of speech for which we are unaware and things like that, so the, it creates a noise, kind of a static that makes it difficult for us to hear and understand some of the things they're saying. When it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, well, the earliest Christians are quite clear. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith or worth is worthless. In 1 Corinthians 15, listen, if Christ is not raised, then the dead aren't going to be raised. You and I aren't going to be raised, and if the dead aren't going to be raised, Let's eat and drink today, for tomorrow we die. Party today, because this is all there is. Get all you can out of life, because there is nothing after this. And that argument makes absolutely no sense, um, unless Paul really meant for us to believe that Jesus had been raised in space and time, that his resurrection was a literal event in history. Well, we have to wait and see if you get an open letter after answering this question on my show today. <laughs> um, next question here. Does Matthew's account of the guards placed at Jesus' tomb nullify the argument that the disciples believed in Jesus' resurrection despite every predisposition to the contrary? I'm not quite under, uh I don't really, I don't understand the question. I think it might be asking, we might place more of a Pharisees with asking, well, why would the Pharisees place a guard of a tomb unless they believe that Jesus really thought he was going to be raised? And couldn't the disciples have really believed the same thing then? Well, I think they were saying, okay, so I think that they were saying that um, at least Jesus was predicting that he was going to be raised from the dead. And I do think we have, on, we have good historical grounds for believing that. Um so if Jesus actually predicted his death and they knew that he had predicted it, according to Matthew, they suspected not that Jesus would be raised, but that his disciples would come and steal the body and then claim that he had been raised. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, they're suspecting that that's what the disciples are going to do. I don't yeah. think that nullifies any doubts or misunderstandings 
that the disciples might have had. They just knew what Jesus was teaching about his death and resurrection. That doesn't mean that the disciples understood everything mm-hmm. about that or had faith that he was actually going to be raised from the dead. Mm-hmm. Okay. What do you make of the claim that one can see a theological evolution of ideas progressing from simpler to more complex from the Gospels are placed in chronological order of authorship from Mark to John? I don't really see that. Um, you know, I, I think you can arrange things to, to look the way that you want to see it. You know, like if I were to take a teaspoon, mm-hmm. you know, uh, if I took a spoon and then I took... Uh, a soup spoon, and then I took a small pan, and then a pot, and then a bathtub, and then a swimming pool, and say, hey, uh, arrange these in some kind of order. You'd probably look at them and go from small to large, and then, of course, you could you know, make some kind of argument out of that, that a teaspoon evolved into a pool or whatever you want to do, you know? Um, but it doesn't mean that that's what happened. You can look and... Yeah, you can say in some cases that Matthew has more developed uh, uh, version of the story than Mark. Mm-hmm. But as I'm looking through the Gospels carefully, there are numerous cases when Mark has a greater uh, the, presents the story in a more developed manner mm-hmm. than Matthew or Luke presents it. Um, now, that said, I think you could look and you, you know, Mark. There are times when he provides an abbreviated account of things. And so Matthew and Luke expand on those things. That doesn't mean that they invented those things. They just might be expanding on things that they know Mark didn't cover. And then John, of course, if he's writing in the nineties, he's writing, you know, 30, uh, you know, perhaps 30 years or more after Mark. And so he wants to relate things more theologically. They've already got the historical accounts. He's going to list these, but he's going to kind of interpret what these mean in the life of Jesus, why these occurred, what they mean. And um, I don't know that that would be embellishing. It would just be a a different thing, almost like a commentary, you could say, on the synoptics. Um, So I don't know. I think that that too much is made of those kinds of things. You see what you want to see. Mm -hmm. But that you can give counterexamples like crazy. Um, Mike, you've got a book coming out next year, believe it is, on Plutarch and the Gospels. Would this kind of question be addressed in that book also? Um, not really. Uh, okay. What I am doing in that book, Nick, is, uh, you know, half the book is going to be on looking at uh, 30 pericopes or stories in Plutarch's lives, nine of them that occur on two or more occasions, comparing them and uh, inferring compositional devices Plutarch is using and, and that classicists say that all ancient historians and biographers used at that time and showing that Plutarch was using this by comparing how Plutarch tells the same story using pretty much the same sources yeah. and writing them at the same time. And then I'm taking those inferred compositional devices and looking at a number of pericopes or stories in the Gospels that appear on two or more occasions or that appear in two or more of the Gospels and seeing that these same compositional devices that we can infer being used by Plutarch are what the Gospel authors were using that explain those, the differences, many, many of the differences that we find in the Gospels. Okay, this next question 
Yeah, this is the kind of thing I come across a lot on the internet. How do you handle extreme skeptics who basically will only affirm a fact of history if we have film video of it? Someone who rejects reliability of any eyewitness. Well, I'd say first of all, you know, get get your attitude correct in there. And that is our attitude, our thoughts behind this is it is not our responsibility to convince, to persuade. Um, if a person, I mean, you've heard this this adage so many times, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Mm-hmm. So you you if if a person doesn't want to believe and they have an unreasonable burden of proof, you're you're just not going to convince them. It doesn't mean that your arguments aren't good. It just means it, it that person is closed-minded. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't. Don't cast your pearls before swine, I'd say. And I don't mean that as a denigrating thing to the uber skeptic in that sense. I don't mean it in that sense. What I'm just saying is... Um, Choose your battles it, effectively. Yeah. Like when I look, when I come into conversations with people and they bring up something like that, say, look, you're given a, a burden of proof that no professional historian worth your salt would accept. If we apply that burden of proof that you need a video um, to do it, uh, to confirm it, well, then you've got to throw out all of ancient history. That means you can't know that Caesar was assassinated or that he had crossed the Rubicon or that Antony defeated um, uh, Brutus at Philippi. Um, we, we can't know any of these things because it's not on video. And besides, even if it were on video, you just say, well, the video – you know, can be doctored up and faked. Yeah. And so there's just no way. Mm. The, the fact is, is when it comes to things that far uh, into the past, we can only look at the data we have. We formulate hypotheses and we judge hypotheses according to varying degrees of probability. Mm. Um, this might, might have occurred. This is uh, that this occurred is more probable than not. This is, you know, quite probable. It's very probable. It's certain, you know, that this occurred. You have these varying degrees of certainty for which you can judge things. And that's what historians do. And that's all we can expect to do when it comes to something related to Jesus. Okay, let's go to the next question then. What happened to Jesus' body when he ascended? If physical, does he still have to take care of bodily functions that we have here? We have no idea. Scriptures do not. Uh, address it, and all you can do is speculate, and they're, they're kind of useless questions, I think. I'm not saying that the person asked that. <laughs> you know, I'm not trying to insult them in any sense. I'm yeah. just saying we need not uh, we need not really spend much time on wondering about that. What we do know is that uh, the earliest Christians believed that Jesus was raised bodily. Um, even Paul Years later, about 30 years later, when he wrote Colossians, and I think Paul wrote Colossians, and a slight, ever so slight majority of scholars believe that Paul wrote Colossians. Um, so uh, when he wrote that um, in Colossians 2, I think it's verse 8 or verse 9, he says, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells, present tense, in bodily form. That's verse 9. So Paul believed that mm-hmm. Jesus still had a body. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a glorious body. Uh, Philippians chapter uh, 3, verses 20 and 21 talked about Jesus 
having a glorious body and that our bodies, our current mortal humble bodies will be transformed to be like Jesus' glorious body. So what is that like now? Um, well, we don't know. It's a supernatural body. It's an immortal body. If we are to believe uh, Luke's account of the appearance to the man's disciples, um, John's account, um, uh, when Jesus appeared uh, the first or second time to his disciples in the room that had locked doors, um, he could appear and disappear at will. So, you know, I think N.T. Wright gave it a pretty decent term when he called it transphysical. Mm-hmm. What exactly that means, who knows? We can leave it sufficiently vague because the scriptures just don't tell us anymore. Mm-hmm. And anything beyond that is just pure speculation. Okay. The next question here. Did Nazareth have a synagogue at the time of Jesus? How would this affect the reading of Luke 4? Um, I haven't studied archaeology, and um, so I, I can't answer that question. I, I don't know the answer to that question. Would I you never rec- studied Would you recommend the question or go to someone like, say, Craig Evans on this? Oh, question? Craig Evans would be phenomenal, something like that, yep. Mm-hmm. Or um, I don't know if this book covers it, um, but there's a book edited by James Charlesworth of Princeton. It's titled Jesus and Archaeology. Craig Evans does some uh, uh, submit. Uh, he's got an essay in there on. Um, uh, they think they may have found the ossuary or burial box of um, Alexander, the uh, son of of um, Simon of Cyrene. Mm-hmm. So, um, but there's a lot in there about that and about archaeology in the New Testament, and so um, that'd be a book to look at. But yeah, someone like Craig Evans would would probably know the answer mm-hmm. to that. I'm thinking of book Jesus and His World right now has a has something on that. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. Next question. I've often taken the position that the Jews of Jesus' time, including the disciples, had no concept of one individual being raised in the middle of time, and that Jesus' resurrection came as a shock to them. Their mindset, rather, was of a general resurrection at the end of time. Of course, this is a position of scholars such as N.T. Wright. If this is the case, how do we handle passages like Luke 9, 18-20 and parallels, which seems to suggest a popular notion of one individual returning from the dead in some way? And now that passage for our interest, that's the uh, Luke in the account of... Uh, Herod and John the Baptist. Wait, not, not that one, although that certainly fits, but it, it's a similar one about the confession of who Jesus is and how some said, oh, this is, you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. So how, how does this fit in, then? All right, that's Luke chapter 9, verse what? 18 through 20. All right, so uh, let me just look at that real quickly. Uh, who the crowd say I am? All right, John the Baptist, Elijah, were some of the others. Um, yeah, well, you know, I guess Luke doesn't really give any more of a context on you know, what they're saying there. Um, so did they think that would would those people have said that John the Baptist or Elijah or other of the prophets had been resurrected? Um, how did they understand things? Um, I guess, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how I would answer that. I'd have to give that some thought. I haven't really given that a, whole lot, a lot of thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to wing it here. So, um, yeah, it's a decent question. Um, I'd have to think about that some. 
I think one of the the apocryphal books, Fourth Ezra, or something like that, talks about Eli talks about Jeremiah returning at the time of Messiah, and then you can look at Malachi who says, "I will send Elijah before that day comes." So those could be places for people to start looking, couldn't they? Yeah, I guess that sounds good, Nick. Mm-hmm. I guess it'd be something would someone say that they were resurrected, um, you know, and. Okay, so even if that were the case, I guess we could say, all right, so they thought that maybe Elijah or Jeremiah or some of these others, uh, perhaps one of the prophets of old, could have been Mm -hmm. resurrected. But did they think that Jesus would be resurrected? Right. Um, Jesus did predict his resurrection. So I guess maybe you you could say, and I don't know, I'm just thinking out loud here, that maybe there were a few examples of people who they thought would have been could have raised from the dead, uh, been raised from the dead prior to the general resurrection, but these would have been the exceptions to the rule. Um, so Jesus would have had to have been just another of the very, very ha- few handful of exceptions. Um, still, you would have everybody else would have been expected to be raised at the general resurrection. So I guess you you could say <laughs> let's nuance that and say uh, in Jewish thought in that day, of course, some like the Sadducees didn't think there was any afterlife. Mm-hmm. So I don't even know what they would have done with with these few exceptions. Um, but you could say, well, there may have been a handful of exceptions, just a handful, and Jesus could have been one of that handful of exceptions. But um, that would have been just an exception. Still, most would have expected to be raised at the general resurrection. Okay, let's get another question on the ascension from Acts 1. In a debate with William Lane Craig, John Shelby Spong recalled a conversation he had with Carl Sagan. Sagan reportedly pointed out that if Jesus had literally gone up into the air and left the earth to reach heaven, he wouldn't have even passed our own galaxy by now, and there are in fact thousands of galaxies. This, according to Sagan and Spong, proves that the literal interpretation of the New Testament is ridiculous. How would you respond to Carl Sagan on this point? It's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, after all, really, if Jesus is divine and, you know, uh, it's true that he is the creator and sustainer of the universe, as John in the, uh, John's gospel at the very beginning and Paul in and Colossians chapter one says, um, if Jesus is the creator and sustainer of the universe, he's not limited mm-hmm. by having to travel at the speed of light or whatever case he can think about being somewhere and he's there. And if he can appear and disappear at will, um, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't have any problem with thinking that he still has to be traveling in space to get out of the universe. Mm-hmm. Okay. Here's another question on Matthew 27. How does, now some of this has been answered earlier, but there's an extra video that I think you can do. How does Dr. Lacona determine which bits are historical and which bits aren't? For example, a zombie horde walking about, earthquake at Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. No extra biblical sources mention these events, so by what criteria does, this, does he distinguish them, and does he fear he is being intellectually honest and consistent in the application of said criteria? Well, you know, we dealt with this a little bit earlier, and I, I think, you know, I try to be consistent and say, all right, there are some things we can prove, some things that we can't. I think that we have really good, we're on secure ground to say that Jesus was raised from the dead, that this is what the earliest Christians were claiming that Jesus' resurrection was an event that occurred in space-time, and it involved Jesus' corpse. Mm -hmm. Um, 
uh, was Jesus baptized? I think by John the Baptist. I think there's really good evidence that, um, uh, yes, he was. Um, did the voice come out of the sky? Can we confirm, though, that Jesus, uh, a voice came out of the sky saying, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased um, at Jesus' baptism? Well, we can't confirm that. Um, uh, you know, uh, can we confirm the virgin birth? No, we can't confirm the virgin birth. Can we confirm Jesus' death by crucifixion? Yes, we can confirm his death by crucifixion. Can we confirm the earthquake and the saints walked in or around after Jesus' resurrection? No, we can't confirm that. Does this mean they didn't occur? No. Does it mean they occurred? No. It just means we have to put a question mark there. And, you know, historically speaking. And, and I'm talking just uh, purely historical. Now, if you're looking at it theologically or if you take the doctrine of biblical inerrancy, you still have to ask the question, what were the uh, the authors intending to communicate here? Uh, in Like Matthew, did he intend to communicate these things actually occurred in space-time, these six uh, phenomena reported at Jesus' death? And I think some of that, we got to just have to put a question mark there and say it, it's really uh, difficult to determine. Now, if a question did ask about extra-biblical sources, what role... And do extra biblical sources play when asking questions like this? For instance, when the Bible records an event and the Bible is the only source we have of that event? Well, I do think, look, just about all the biblical literature is written according to a, a genre uh, of, in, in the, in the cult, in its, within its cultural milieu. So, for example, you've got Proverbs and Ecclesiastes is known as wisdom literature. And so you can compare that with other wisdom literature. Um, and in fact, you know, people like John Walton have done this uh, yeah. in his uh, Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary. Right. And he shows how with Proverbs uh, and Ecclesiastes that the author borrowed a lot of this from Egyptian mm -hmm. wisdom literature. Um, so understanding what wisdom literature is helps us to arrive at a proper interpretation. And as Jonathan Pennington at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary says, to ignore the genre uh, is to do so at one's own peril. Mm. Uh, when you look at Psalms, it is poetic literature. And we interpret it in such. So when it says that God is asleep, we don't interpret that as God actually having his eyes closed and taking a rest in a quasi-conscious state. Um, because it's poetic literature, you interpret it in that. When you look at Kings and Samuel, that is historical literature, and you compare it with other historical literature of that period. When you look at um, Acts, the book of Acts, almost everybody, uh, evangelicals on the far right of the evangelical spectrum would agree that Acts is historiography, that Luke uh, is familiar with Greco-Roman historiography. He shows all kinds of things, uh, earmarks for that. So uh, Paul is writing letters. Revelation mm -hmm. is apocalyptic literature. So if you're looking at all of this and you're saying, okay, the, the God inspired the writers according to the particular genre, why would you, why, why would you think that the Gospels are exempt from Greco-Roman biography? Mm -hmm. That they are the only example in the biblical literature where God said, Ah, I'm going to write according to a unique genre. Right. Um, I think we should be surprised if that were the case. And mm -hmm. and we ignore it, as Pennington would say, to our own peril. 
if we try to interpret the Bible outside of the particular genre in, in which the literature was written. And isn't it a mistake to say we should be skeptical of an account if only the Bible records it and nothing outside the Bible says it? No. Um, we might be able to say at best that we cannot confirm his we cannot confirm historically that this event occurred, but that doesn't mean the event did not occur. There are plenty of events that are reported by other ancient secular historians that are accepted as probably having occurred. We can't uh, yeah. confirm it because they're the only source, but you know, you look at the internal, external evidence, you say, ah, this probably occurred, mm-hmm. although it's only reported by one author. So it, it Look, uh, that Claudius, the emperor Claudius, expelled the Jews from Rome is only reported by two sentences in uh, uh, Luke, uh, in in, uh, the book of Acts, and by Suetonius in his life of Claudius. Mm -hmm. So um, aside from those two sentences in each of those, we wouldn't know anything about it. So there's two sources there, but it's barely in either of the sources. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. And this applies to even major events like the eruption of Vesuvius. I and mean, we wouldn't even have an account that says it, it destroyed Herculeum until we get to Cassius Dio, right? I haven't studied that one, Nick, so um, I'll just go with you on that one. Okay. Well, at this point, we're halfway through the show. I can mind when you're listening to Deeper Waters podcast, Dr. Mike Lacona is my guest. We're playing Grill Christian here, asking him questions about the New Testament. And we talked a little bit about marriage, seeing as my wife and I are about to celebrate five years together in a couple of weeks. And if you want to talk about marriage, you need to be listening next week. We're going to have someone come on the show who's been a good friend of Mike Lately Anderson. Glenn Stanton is going to be on the show. He's from Focus on Family. He's a scholar on marriage. We're going to be talking about what difference marriage makes and definitely be talking some about the uh, recent events that the Supreme Court has brought about in our country. That's what we Christians can do about it. So be listening next week. We have Glenn Stanton coming on talking about why marriage matters. But for now, let's get back to Mike and some questions here. Okay, this one's about the character of Jesus. Hey, by the way, Nick, uh, yeah. happy anniversary uh, coming up here. It's, Thank uh, you. That's great. Mm-hmm. You've already made it longer than a lot of couples do. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a few years on you. I, I think my you know, my wife and I have been married 28 years, and yeah. we have a strange and wonderful relationship. I'm strange, and she's wonderful. Yeah, and, and uh, are you kind of one of the same question of how is it that she hasn't killed you yet? Right. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Sleep with one eye open. Uh, <laughs> although Ali has said something about uh, having a baseball bat under the bed. I'm still trying to figure out what that's about. <laughs> okay. This one's about the character of Jesus. Why did Jesus curse the fig tree? Was it because it was not bearing fruit out of the season, as he said? Isn't that kind of petty and disingenuous on his part? Well, it kind of seems that way, but what if Jesus was wanting to make a point out of that? Mm-hmm. You know? And the point being, pretty much, you, uh, you know, Israel bears fruit. Um, you know, accept him as the Messiah, bear fruit, or um, be destroyed. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happened. It's, you know, the temple was destroyed. And according to Hebrews, you know, according to Paul and the rest of them, um, you know, the covenant with Israel in that sense, uh, you know, there's a new covenant that has now been made. Mm-hmm. And the covenant is with Jew and Gentile alike. So um, um, it's not through Judaism anymore. It's through Jesus. 
and the temple is no longer around, that has been destroyed. That is the fig tree. The temple system has been destroyed. It has withered and died. And I, I, so Jesus, Jesus cursing the fig tree was just the foreshadowing of what was to come with the destruction of the Jewish temple cult. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people could wonder the same question about the herd of pigs that uh, Jesus had driven into the, the lake when he was in the region where he healed legion. Would that be the same kind of thing? Yeah, I, I guess so. I, I guess your PETA folks wouldn't like that too much. <laughs> no. So uh, it would be the, the, the green criteria, right? He mm-hmm. wouldn't curse a fig tree because it would hurt the environment. And um, and he was an, uh, he loved animals, so he wouldn't have done that with, uh, <laughs> with yeah. the swine. Yeah. So um, that would be an arbitrary criterion. Yeah, we, we can think it's funny, but Bertrand Russell actually does raise that argument about the swine and why I'm not a Christian. Well, if that's what he wanted to use, he's very free to do that. Okay, we've got another question here about Matthew 27. Uh, for some reason, you seem to be a magnet for these kinds of questions here. I have no idea why. <laughs> no idea why. <laughs> Is Matthew 27, 52 to 53 good evidence that the first Christians were inventing stories about bodily resurrection? I don't think so. If, I mean, if they were using it, let's just say for a moment that they were using uh, a poetic device that had been used by many, many uh, different uh, historians of that of that milieu. Mm-hmm. Um, if if that's what was going on, then it's not necessarily invention anymore. Then someone reports and says, "Hey, it was raining cats and dogs today," to say that this person was given to fiction. Mm-hmm. Or to say that uh, the events of 9-11 were earth-shaking. We wouldn't interpret that to say, it'd be wrong to interpret that to say, wow, there was a massive earthquake that was uh, felt around the world that day. Mm -hmm. Um, That would be a hermeneutical blunder right there. And so I I think this is where uh, a number of skeptical scholars go wrong with that text. Because if Matthew is using a poetic device here, poetic, apocalyptic type of language, whatever you want to call it, um, then it's wrong for, it would be wrong for us to, in, to say that Matthew is speaking of the saints being raised in a literal sense, um, but it's equally false to say that Matthew was um, speaking in terms of, um, you know, actual resurrections there and inventing this. Because maybe Matthew didn't intend for us to believe it in that sense. Mm-hmm. You know, when we're talking about the kind of language used, first off, I want to let people know that on August 1st, I'm going to have on the show D.D. Warren, author of a book, It's Not the End of the World, a commentary on Matthew 24, one of the best ones you'll find out there. And so we'll be talking about this kind of language a bit there. But um, I, I recently wrote a review of Jerry Coyne's book, Faith versus Facts. And he talked about this. Well, how do you know what's literal? How do you know what isn't? And I brought up this. Uh, I just looked for sports stories online because I don't normally look for this kind of stuff. Because, as you can say, when we get together with you are and you are turn on the football game, I pop open my book and just start reading. <laughs> yes, I'm yeah. a weirdo here. But I found this review of Super Bowl 22. You know, some of these ter- phrases you can tell are metaphors because of the use of like and such, but. Here are things that were said in this short article here describing it. Like worthless documents, the Denver Broncos were cut up, torn apart, and scattered about San Diego's Jack Murphy Stadium by 
Old North's favorite team. The Washington Redskins Sunday massacre was 42 to 10. The slaughter was on. A tremor started Super Bowl week in San Diego. A Washington earthquake ended it. You know, we could ask the same kind of question, couldn't we? <laughs> That's great. You got to send me a copy of that. I love it. Yeah, we yeah. Could, I mean, gosh, you could say, see, in the in the tw- late twentieth century, they had gladiatorial events. Uh huh. And they, these happen with an earthquake, or you can just say, "Geez, we use the same rules of literature we use in other places." Sometimes it is much harder because we're so far removed from the events in the culture, but it's still the same basic principle, isn't it? It sure is, Nick. That is just a fantastic example. You know, and, and then uh, there's just so many others. I mean, there's there's um, some interpret the uh, uh, origin. It's kind of questionable, the interpretation, but it seems that he took Jesus' statement about some making themselves eunuchs for the kingdom, um, and he took that literally and performed ca- self-castration. Yeah, I kind of wince when I hear that. Yeah, I mean, hermeneutical blunders have tragic consequences, you know? So it's... um. But whether that's true of origin, we know it is true of several, uh, a, a number of of Christian men in the first couple of centuries of the church. Mm-hmm. They had to get to the point where the church said, stop performing this self-castration. Um, this is not what Jesus meant. And from now on, anyone who does it is uh, forever um, disqualified from church leadership. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, if look, if they could misinterpret things like that. And they were reading the Gospels in their original language, and they were reading it. They were a lot closer to the events than us within just a couple of hundred years. Then we shouldn't be surprised when it is difficult for us at times to understand what is being said. Mm-hmm. Hey, this is a, a question about inerrancy also. Is the story of Jesus and the adulteress to be stoned really apocrypha, as Ehrman says in misquoting Jesus? If so, how should Christians remedy this problem? Well, Dan Wallace, who has debated Ehrman, um, and this came up in that debate, Dan Wallace uh, said, just like with the majority of New Testament scholars, including evangelicals, is that that story probably did not appear in the Gospel of John, at least uh, as, as, as it was originally written. Um, some believe that it, uh, it, it uh, came from the, uh, a different manuscript, the Gospel of Luke, mm-hmm. um, because they say it, it has Luke and style and vocabulary in it. I, I don't know. I have a friend named uh, John David Punch who did his doctoral dissertation, his PhD dissertation on this, and he went into it, uh, you know, wanting to prove that this was in, uh, that John included this originally in his in his gospel. And he came out of it saying, I don't know, he may have, he may not have. So he studied it a lot more than the average New Testament scholar, a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. And he's indecisive about it. So we really don't know whether it appeared in the original Gospel of John. Perhaps, maybe even probably, it did not appear in the original Gospel of John. Um, how do we, how do we, did it actually happen in the life of Jesus? Well, there are a number of New Testament scholars who would say that even if it didn't appear in the original Gospel of John, it may very well reflect an authentic event in the life of Jesus. Hmm. We don't know. So I would say that um, pastors should tread very carefully uh, when using this in a sermon, and maybe they should avoid it altogether. Now, let's take the worst-case scenario, and let's suppose that this really is an apocryphal story. I mean, does, does this damage our understanding of inerrancy of the reliability of the text? 
Well, of course not, because, you know, what is being said there, uh, the, the, what is being taught is we need to forgive that everybody is guilty of sin um, and that even an adulteress who was caught in the act mm-hmm. can be forgiven. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, isn't this taught all throughout the other Gospels and mm-hmm. throughout the New Testament literature? We really don't lose anything. Mm-hmm. And if it is, in addition to the text, it's in fact one that we can recognize, which should show us how reliable the text really is. Um, say that again, I'm sorry. If it is an addition to the text, the thing is, we can recognize it as an addition, and the only way we could recognize it as an addition is if we had some idea of what the text originally said. So that kind of does, in a roundabout way, show how reliable the text is. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly that we do have criteria for going with you know, what appears to be authentic material, and if it, if it doesn't make that cut, you're right. I, I suppose you'd say at this point that the read, the questioner is best served by going to Dan Wallace's books on the topic. Sure. And Dan Wallace has been on the show before, and we have discussed this topic specifically, so the, listen, the questioner is advised to go back and listen to that show, too. Okay. Wallace is the man. He's mm-hmm. He's amazing. I've been reading about Jesus' perspective on hell, and good arguments can be made like Gehana did not imply a perpetual place of torment for individual souls. Although unbelievers would not experience eternal life, Jesus was actually warning of a national judgment, as Old Testament prophets did, through fire references. I would like Mr. Lacona's thoughts on this. Well, hell is not a topic that I've really researched a lot. I've read a couple of books on it, like Four Views on Hell. It's a, a hot topic. <laughs> it's um, it's really a, it's a, it's a decent book mm-hmm. um, by Zondervan. Mm-hmm. There are other books on it on hell. There are several different views of hell. Um, I re- again, I just haven't done an in-depth study on it and um, not prepared to comment on it. Yeah, it, it's just not burning passion of yours, is it? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So when when I get together with Mike and everyone else, we have a. Puns going back and forth like crazy. <laughs> Drives Audi nuts when that happens. <laughs> Simple question here, very short. Can we establish the authorship of a New Testament text? Well, I think in many cases we can, and we can to different degrees of probability. So I do think we can establish with pretty good probability the traditional authorship of Mark and Luke. Uh, John's a little more difficult, but I do think I, I do think there's a good chance that John wrote um, the gospel attributed to him. Um, if not John, then uh, a minor disciple. It's just hard to say. There, you know, it, it gets really involved. Matthew's the most difficult one. Um, I think we can say, you know, I mean, we can unpack it if you like, uh, but I think we can say that there's a good chance that Matthew. Um, some of the material, at least, in Matthew's gospel came from Matthew. Um, when it comes to Paul's letters, I, I think um, we're on good grounds. I mean, the New Testament scholars are virtually unanimous that of the 13 letters attributed to Paul in the New Testament, seven of them are written by Paul, um, at least seven of them. If we add Colossians and Second Thessalonians, which I think the majority of scholars it's different, though, that the other seven, virtually 100 percent, a virtual consensus on that. Once you get past the seven, a lot smaller. So, you know, you look at, uh, again, 
Colossians and Second Thessalonians, where a slight majority accepts them as coming from Paul. So now you're at nine. And so the remaining four would be Ephesians and then the pastoral letters, First, Second Timothy and Titus. I think that there's some decent evidence that Paul wrote Ephesians. I'm not persuaded by a lot of the arguments against it. If we do some on the style and, and the and the words that are used, I, I mean, I looked at this uh, years ago, and I'm just not persuaded by it. I think if you look a little more carefully, I think those arguments fail. I Personally, I think Paul wrote Ephesians, but it's not a hill to die on. He could have used a, a, a secretary, a scribe, to help him on that, and that could account for some stylistic differences. Mm-hmm. When it comes to First, Second Timothy, and Titus, I haven't studied enough. Um, but even people like D.A. Carson and Doug Moo in their New Testament introduction, um, they admit that you know these three are kind of difficult. They tend to lean, they lean toward the view that Paul wrote them, but they said we just can't know with certainty. Mm-hmm. And those three were disputed as being written by Paul in the early church. So, um, you know, Hebrews, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Even Origen said only God knows who wrote Hebrews. Um, so some of them are a little more difficult. Second Peter and Jude, these were disputed within the early church, and many scholars dispute their authorship even today. So some are just more easier. They're just more they can be the traditional authorship is more easily established with some than others. And in the case of some, we just have to leave a question mark there. Yeah. I'd like to let uh, listeners know also we've had Andrew Pitts and Justin Langford both come on to discuss the question of forgeries in the New Testament. So they're welcome to go and listen to those shows. And we've got a show coming up on August 29th that's going to be talking about Paul some. And one of these guys is definitely an authority on the letters of Paul. You, and that's going to be Rodney Reeves and Randy Richards talking about their book, Rediscovering Paul. And Randy Richards did his dissertation on this kind of topic, didn't he? He did his dissertation on the secretaries in Paul's letters. Yes. And uh, fascinating, fascinating dissertation. Um, I've read the dissertation. Um, I wish that I had not. <laughs> and and the only reason I haven't, I, I wish that I had not, is because it came out in a more popular book version that included everything in the dissertation and more. Um, and it was like a whole lot cheaper. I mean, you could buy it for like 15 bucks, whereas I paid, I think, $70 for his dissertation. So I could have learned more for about only 25% of that cost or, or even less. So, um, yeah, a fantastic work that uh, Randy did on that. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'd like to remind everyone, since we don't know how long it could take for the next question, that uh, everything we do here is listener-supported. Now, I'm going to take a little bit different format to discuss how that works today due to the guests I have on. I'd like to say uh, you can uh, support us through Amazon. We do have a bookstore, so you can buy books that you hear about on the show. You can support us by buying books that I have written or co-written as well, such as a Creed for the Ages, my look at the Apostles Creed, or Defining Inerrancy, which I, I think that's got a little something to do with some of the questions that we've had on the show today. Just just getting a hint that it does. Um, Groundless, a book J.P. Holding and I also co-wrote, responding to Dan Barker, and one that I wrote with, an atheist, God and Natural Disasters, Do You Have a Problem of Evil There?, 
And you can work with my friend, Lena Klester. We've got a link to our site where she works with female jewelry. You go there and you enter the code LOVE and you make a purchase of a jewelry. And when you do, you let her know, you let me know, and I contact her then. And whatever you purchase, 25% goes to Deeper Waters. Which means, guys, if you want to buy your wife or your girlfriend a very nice piece of jewelry and you spend, say, 100 bucks getting it, you just made a $25 donation also to Deeper Waters. And we really appreciate that. And the last way to make a donation, and the most common way, is to make it through Risen Jesus, which is your ministry, Mike. So if someone wants to make a donation that way, how do they go about doing it? Well, I would say, um, Nick, this, this last way that you mentioned is, is, is the, in my opinion, would be the best of all ways of supporting yes. you. And I think your ministry is certainly worth supporting. And, you know, a person could give 25 or $50 or $100. They could do it one time or they can sign up so that it's a recurring donation and they could even do it on their credit card so that they get miles for it every month, mm-hmm. uh, points for it every month, which, which helps them. So, um, I mean, a $25 or $50 a month may not be a whole lot to one of our listeners, but it can make a big difference for you because oh, yes. it'd be a number of people doing it. Mm-hmm. You get 10, you know, 10, 20 people. Say you get 20 people doing $50 a month. That's $1,000 a month. Mm-hmm. It's at $50 a month that most people won't miss. Right. But wow, you get 20, 20, 20 people making a $50 a month contribution. It makes a huge difference in your life, in your world. Oh, yes. So I would in, I would encourage people to consider giving a fifty dollar signing up to give a fifty dollar recurring donation. Now here's how they would do it: go to risenjesus.com, which is my website, my personal website, uh-huh. and then they go to the donate page, and then they just enter their information in there. If they if they would rather come out monthly from electronically from their checking account, I can't do that for them, but it gives them directions on how to do that. However they do it, whether they do it through their credit card or they send a check or they get it set up so monthly it comes out of their checking account uh, and they choose the amount and they can stop it anytime they want. However they decide to do it, in order for that to go into your account, they have to send you or me an email saying that this amount that they just set up to contribute a certain amount, you know, $50 a month or whatever it is, and they wanted to go to Nick Peters. Mm-hmm. So they can do that by just sending an email through. Uh, they just go to the contact page on my website, risenjesus.com. They've already been there to do the donate. And then they just send a an email saying that they just signed up for that. They're giving $50 a month or however much. And that this is meant for Nick Peters for his ministry. And it's... Uh, it's tax deductible. We have a 501c3, so it's tax deductible is allowable by law. And um, and they'll get a receipt at the end of the year for it all. Yeah, and I'd like to say that the Mike isn't just saying this out of some sort of personal bias or such. He, he's really been a great supporter and admirer of a lot of material that I've produced here, and he really does think it's worth funding. I do. I do. I think it is uh, definitely worthwhile. You're doing some great stuff, Nick. And uh, I'll tell you, you know, the recent um, I saw an email that came uh, not long ago and or it wasn't an email. I think it was on Facebook, a pastor commenting 
thanking you, Nick Peters, mm. for the work that you do because it had saved his faith. Mm-hmm. Think about that. The work that Nick Peters is doing saved the faith of a pastor. And think of what that means for his congregation. Mm-hmm. So it has a ripple effect. You're doing some great work. And um, for people to give, however much it is, a little bit, five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, $50 a month, $100 a month, 500 a month, whatever it is, or a one-time gift, it helps. It helps, and you can make a difference in the kingdom of God. Yeah. Uh, I uh, save that best way for last because I'm also going to turn it over to you, and there's a similar way to make donations to your ministry if people want to do that, isn't there? Yeah, all they have to do, they can, again, just go to the donate page and enter the amount you know, that they want to donate, and whether it's a recurring, it's real simple. Mm-hmm. And um, they don't have to send an email to say that it's for you. I mean, it just yeah. automatically it goes into our ministry, and they'll get a receipt at the end of the year. And, of course, we appreciate support yeah. from anyone because it helps us. We're mm-hmm. largely donor-supported, so um, yeah. we appreciate that as well. So, again, you can make donation the exact same way. If you want to go to Mike's ministry, just make a donation. If you want to go to mine... Let us know. Yep. Just send an email saying you want that amount of money to go to Nick, and it will. And if you want to split it up, let us know. We can take care of that, too, right? That's that's correct. Okay. Let's get back to the questions. Arnold Frechtenbaum and several others mentioned by an ancient rabbinical thought, there were two messiahs expected, Messiah ben Joseph, the suffering servant, and Messiah ben David, the conquering king. Apparently, the prevalent view among ancient rabbis that these were two different messiahs, but Fruchtenbaum et al.'s contention is that these both were Jesus Christ, first coming and second coming, respectively. Obviously, the Jews have become much more focused on Messiah than David by the time of Christ's ministry. My question is, has Dr. Lacona encountered much reference to Messiah ben Joseph in his New Testament work, such that this view above seems to him plausible or unlikely? I don't read about Messiah Ben David all that often, so I'm curious when an ancient document plumber like Dr. Lacona has found. Well, there's a nice little title for you, Mike. <laughs> so you can put that on your resume. Mike Lacona, ancient document plumber. <laughs> what do you think of this question? I, you know, I haven't really studied that, so I, I really don't have any, uh, I don't have any thoughts on it. I can just say that the earliest Christians regarded Jesus as the Messiah. Um, the, the anticipated Messiah, and they believed he was going to return again. Yeah, I'm thinking that if they want more information, they could start by reading, say, the Dead Sea Scrolls, perhaps. And you can read that in English, can't you? You sure can. And also, Michael Brown has dealt with this kind of thing in his answering Jewish objections to Jesus. So I would encourage the questioner to try and pick up a copy of that one. Unfortunately, I don't remember which volume it is. Him, but he deals with a question of Messiah ben David and Messiah ben Joseph. Okay, next question here. Even if the historical Jesus of the Gospels is accurately portrayed in those texts, why should that compel me to commit to him? A very personal question in many ways, isn't it? Well, it is. Um, and that's something that someone's going to have to decide for themselves. If Jesus was who he claimed to be, if he is who he claimed to be, the uniquely divine son of God, mm-hmm. that he died for our sins, that he rose from the dead, and that um, we can only have eternal life through him. I mean, it seems to me the wise person is going to say, okay, you know, I may not 
I think the fact is most of us, maybe not all of us, but most of us want to live life the way we want to live life. Mm-hmm. We want to live life and get the most out of it. We want to live for our, our own personal happiness and, and so forth. Jesus calls us to be his disciples. And that could mean a period of time that we're, God's going to ask us to do some things. And being his disciple, it's going to make us unpopular. That's going to mean that it's going to require a sacrifice in our life. It might even mean that we have to sacrifice our life because mm-hmm. we'll be martyred for our faith. There could be, you know, imprisonment, execution, whatever, because of our Christian faith and following Jesus. This has happened from the beginning of the church and happens up to this very day. There are more Christian martyrs every year today than ever in the history of the church. A lot of that is because of the larger population. But there is a huge attack on Christians today all around the world. Mm-hmm. So God's purpose for us is not our happiness, it's our holiness. And so when the individual looks and says, okay, um, this isn't about me. It's not about my personal happiness. It's about my holiness. It's about benefiting God's kingdom, living as a disciple of Jesus. Um, that's what this is about. God is not looking just for someone to believe in his son. He's looking for disciples. He's looking for someone who will follow the teachings of Jesus. And mm. so if everything in the Gospels is true, you've got to look. And even as Jesus said, count the cost mm-hmm. and then make your decision. Um, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, the reward is eternal life. So that's up to the individual. Now, I'm thinking about the text right now where it says you are either for me or against me. And that, that's a strong position to be in because a lot of people really wouldn't want to say they're against Jesus. But Jesus says if you're not for me, and I think that would mean recognizing him as he is, you are against me. Yes. Yep. I agree with you on that. And with what you were saying also, uh, I mean, Christians really are persecuted all around the world and I mean, some of us are predicting persecution is going to come more towards us because of what happened with SCOTUS recently. But I think a lot of times we in America, uh, we uh, look at something and we call it persecution when it could be bad, it could be unpleasant, it could be uncomfortable, but it doesn't near compare to what our brothers and sisters are going through around the world. That's correct. Mm-hmm. I mean, some people, I mean, I, I know, you know, we both have a, a friend, Frank Turk. He's a dear friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And... You know, Frank is full-time in Christian apologetics ministry, has a fantastic ministry. Um, But up until a few years ago, his primary source of income was to do motivational talks, leadership talks around the country. He had uh, Bank of America and Cisco were clients of his, and they had him come in on a regular basis where he'd go in and train management. And uh, had nothing to do with religious stuff. It was, you know, how to be a good leader and, and, and things like this. And, of course, Frank has written a book uh, against same-sex marriage, wrote it several years ago. And because he had written that book, even though he did not speak on it, mm-hmm. Bank of America and Cisco fired him or, or stopped. Uh, they got rid of his contract. And he lost a lot of, of uh, income from that. So, you know, people have paid prices like that um, uh, for their faith and standing for things like that. And it's probably going to get worse. Uh, here in the United States. But, you know, very few people, if any, have gone to prison for their faith here in the U.S. They haven't, few of them have died for their faith. Um, 
and I don't know how how far away we are from something like that. We might be years away, and it may never come to this country like that where people are actually dying for the Christian faith. I don't know. Hmm. So, uh, but I think we can expect persecution coming to our country. I think our next election, presidential election, is going to determine how soon it's going to come and to what degree it's going to come. Um, and, uh, but you're right around the world. I mean, they're not here in the U.S. lining people up like ISIS is doing and beheading them on video for being Christians. Um, you know, we're not there yet. So, you know, I, I agree with you, Nick. We need to stop whining, uh, in our, in our culture about not getting our way. Uh, we are not the default anymore. We are a minority. The We now live in a post-Christian culture, and we have to learn to live with that just like the earliest Christians did and just like most Christians around the world today have to live in that way. We we have to learn to live and accept that we are not the majority. Okay. This question here is not a New Testament question per se. It's a rather more personal one, but I thought it would be a great one to include in here when someone emailed it to me. Through all the criticisms and sufferings you've endured, what and or who keeps you going? Well, I don't know that I've had a whole lot of sufferings. I mean, a few years ago, there was a conflict where I was being attacked and stuff said about me. Um, and, you know, that was difficult on us. It was difficult on me, my wife, my family. Um, but, you know, I don't know. What keeps me going? That... My love for God keeps me going. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm motivated because I want to serve the kingdom and I want to serve God. He's, uh, you know, he's the Lord has done so much for me mm-hmm. and, I, you know, my life is devoted to him. Mm-hmm. So that's what keeps me going. I'm not here to, to please people. Um, if some of the things that I propose at times shakes up the hornet's nest or, uh, you know, <laughs> is not liked by the uber conservative movement. Uh, the uber conservative element of the evangelical movement. Well, then so be it. I'm, I'm going to go with my conscience. I'm going to go with where I think my research is leading. And um, yeah. And I think looking back at that controversy in the long run, it was horrible when it first started, but it's been a great blessing to you overall, hasn't it? I, you know, I would say so, Nick. Um, you know, I was. Uh, I had an effective ministry before. I think my the, the ministry that I have now and influence is greater now than it was before then. Mm-hmm. And it is so to a far broader audience than mm-hmm. it was then. So, you know, there might be some in, like I said, the uber conservative element of the evangelical movement who um, no longer like me or won't invite me to their events. I mean, most of them didn't invite me before anyway. So <laughs> a lot of them wouldn't invite that did invite me, wouldn't invite me back. And that's OK. Mm-hmm. What would you say along the lines of this question to keep apologists, maybe ones that have been in the field for a while, ones who are just starting from avoiding the danger of burnout? Wow, that's a good question. Ah, oh, Wow. Wow, I you know, I'd really have to think about that one, but that is definitely something to think about. Mm-hmm. Um I you know, I haven't burned out. I'm really passionate about what I'm doing and passion can 
keep you going a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but you do have to, I would say, number one, you know, Jesus said, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. Yeah. I don't think it's a sin to work on the Sabbath. Yeah. But I'll tell you this, I find that throughout the week, if I take Sunday off, Mm-hmm. that um and I just relax and not do any work that day, not even think about some of the like the research project I'm on, not respond to involved emails, answering questions and things like that. Yeah. Um I have a lot more energy and my mind is fresh throughout the week. It's kinda like I guess you could say it's like working out. If you work out with weights every day, um it's not going to be productive after a while because your body needs rest time mm-hmm. and rest that rest time. When you lift weights, that rest time is every bit as important as lifting itself mm-hmm. to give your body a chance to recuperate and build itself. And it's the same thing with your mind. So you need time. You need at least that one day a week where you just distance yourself from your research and your emails and don't get involved in in-depth discussions on Facebook, just take the day off and do nothing related to ministry or apologetics. You need that day to rejuvenate. And I think that in itself would go a long way. Yeah. When, uh, when people see me, they, uh, they come to realize that uh, you're not, you're not going to see me posting on Facebook on Sundays. It's because I take a break and it has to be a severe emergency to get me to do that. And, I know you and I both also, we have our hobbies. If I'm over at your house, you're often turn on a football game. Sometimes I sit, put the book down, watch a football game, and that's fine for you. It, it doesn't do anything for me, but it's fine for you. Or you you uh, go with Ari to watch trains, which you enjoy. And, of course, as you and I are both married men, we have to go out on dates and such from time to time and spend time with our wives, and that's time that we definitely don't spend studying and such. And so it, it is important to give that downtime in, isn't it? Oh, so, so important. I think every individual is just going to have to set boundaries for themselves. Yeah. You know, um, I don't know what everybody's schedule is. Everybody's schedule is going to be a little differently. I found that uh, when I was doing my doctoral work, I was having problems sleeping. And um, I went for some sleep studies, you know, the overnight time where they hook you up and everything. And then talking to the sleep doctor afterward, you know, the sleep doctor would ask me these questions. And one was, you know, so what it, you know, what's your schedule look like at night? And I told her and she's no, 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 you know, if you're going to go to bed at whatever hour you need to stop working no less than two hours before going to bed and don't even watch television or be on your computer within an hour of going to bed. Well, what do you do? Read, you know, things like that. And that really helped a lot. You got to, you got to give your mind chance to slow down to, to calm down and um, sleep is really important. You don't get sleep. You're not going to be that productive either. Mm-hmm. And I have a thing that I do because I work hard throughout the year. In fact, most years I don't even take any vacation, um, which is really, I'm finding to be counterproductive. I need to take a little bit of time off during the summer mm-hmm. and I'll start doing that next year. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. um, I can't, I, you know, I'm under a book writing deadline now, but I always try to take the last two weeks of the year off. Mm-hmm. And I find that that really helps me and that I'm usually just, aching to go start January 1st again. But those last two weeks of the year, I try to really guard. I, I need that downtime. Yeah, I also tell guys when they're getting ready to get married, I say, look, when you get married, here's my advice to you. Go for a week, no email, no Facebook, that your only book that you read 
be your Bible. Focus on your wife right at the start and just set that foundation for your marriage. There are better things to be doing anyway. That is good advice, Nick. You know what? And William Lane Craig, mm-hmm. he told me that he does he does not go on Facebook, nor does he answer emails until between. And he only does it between four and five o'clock in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't get done within that hour, it doesn't get done. But you know, we can spend hours and hours every day on Facebook and answering emails and things like that. I yeah. mean, it can just be a black hole to suck your time and life yep. into it. And you got, you know, got to think, of course, we have to answer emails, you know, answer, uh, you know, participating on Facebook and things like that can be productive, but it's only so productive and it's healthy to, hmm. um, to limit our time on Facebook. It's something that I need to give more attention to yep. that and emails. Okay. Let's get back to the questions. What did Christ mean when he told Mary, touch me not, I have not yet ascended to the Father? Well, we can only, you know, speculate on that. Um, um, I think that's in Matthew, isn't it? Are we it's talking in, John? It's in John? John. John. Okay. So, um, if I'm right, if I remember correctly, Craig Keener in his commentary is basically saying this is um, John and his literary artistry, which is d- designed to say, you know, listen, things have are, are now going to change, um, and. You, you can't hold on to me. Our relationship is changing. So I'm not going to be here like this. There's, the Holy Spirit is going to be with you, and you need to start with this. Um, you know, he, he mentions the ascension there, and then later on in the room, it says Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And he says that this is John's literary artistry because John is not going to write a sequel like Luke did with Acts that talks about Pentecost. And so this is John's way of, of, of doing the Pentecost. So I think that's plausible. It's a plausible explanation. Uh, in the end, we're not going to know for sure. We, we, we do know we can show how John, um, you know, takes a, a lot more freedom in the way he re, reworks the Jesus tradition than the synoptics do. Um, I, I like a statement that N.T. Wright uh, made once, and he said he made it on a job interview and did not get the job as a result of this. But they asked him about John and what he thought about John compared to the synoptics, because the stories as told by John are often so different than what we find in the synoptics. And Wright said, um, uh, John, uh, I feel like John, like I do about my wife. I love her, but I don't understand her a lot of the time. I, I think I actually told you about that quote, didn't I? I'm not sure you may have, Nick. Yeah. Okay, here's a question about the appearances here. So here's one right up your alley. If we're to accept First Corinthians claim that risen Jesus appeared to over 500 people, why is it that Acts has a total number of believers in the church at 120? It doesn't seem that these appearances were overly convincing. Well, that would have been, I guess, the appearance uh, when they said 120. I, I'm guessing that that's the upper room. Yes. At, on, on Pentecost. Mm-hmm. Um, well, does that mean that there was that there were only 120 believers at that point, or is that the the number that were in the room? Right. Maybe that included the 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 the, the 11 plus uh, mm-hmm. you know the two plus you know the 70. 
uh, mm-hmm. the 70 or 72, depending on which tradition you're looking at, yeah. um, of, of the others that Jesus had commissioned, plus his mother, his brothers and sisters would have been there. Who knows? So it could have been others. The appearance of the more than 500 could have occurred after Pentecost. It seems, though, it would have occurred before the appearance to Paul, which, you know, probably happened within just a couple of years of Pentecost. And Paul said, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Mm-hmm. So the appearance to the 500 would have occurred, more than 500 at one time would have occurred prior to the appearance to Paul, but it would have occurred after the appearance to the 12. Mm-hmm. And it could be that it occurred in a time when Jesus was on earth, where Pentecost is 50 days after what would be the resurrection event, and people could have been traveling back to Galilee, because a lot of people would be in Jerusalem at that time for a Passover, wouldn't they? Could be. Yep. We just don't know. It's not narrated anywhere. Uh, we don't know anything else about that uh, appearance. But what's interesting, it's in the very earliest material about Jesus' resurrection. It's not in the latter, the later stuff. So mm-hmm. if it were in the later material, then someone might have said, ah, there we go. That's legend right there. That's embellishment. But mm-hmm. it's in the earliest. So that makes it kind of interesting there. Mm-hmm. Here's another question about genre. What is your view of the meaning of a book of Revelation, and what do you make of the argument that it's primarily liturgical and a demonstration of worship in heaven? In particular, the view posited by Scott Hahn and others, the Catholic Mass is broadly following the structure, form, and content contained within it. Great question. I don't know. I've not been a student of Revelation. Um, about all I could say about Revelation is, I, you know, I used to embrace the pre-tribulation view, um, the stuff that you see in the, um, what was the name of that series? Left Behind. The Left Behind series. I, I, I held that for, you know, several decades. And then about 10 years ago, I was a little more than 10 years ago, I was preparing for a debate. And I was studying the Son of Man um, uh, stuff that you find in the Gospels. And I found that um, First Enoch, First Enoch is, is quoted, mentioned, uh, in the book of Jude in the New Testament, the letter of Jude. Um, and um, so you've got First Enoch. When you read that, you read the similitudes of Enoch. Um, it's referring to the Son of Man figure like we find uh, about Jesus in the New Testament. He's this, this divine figure who's worshipped and served only, as only God is, and etc., and First Enoch reads a lot like Revelation. Fourth Ezra reads a lot like the book of Revelation. And I started to realize, wow, well, this is a particular genre. It's apocalyptic literature. And um, then I saw some other verses, you know, and, and as I studied resurrection and stuff, I thought, wow, you know, these verses from First Thessalonians about, you know, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet will sound, dead in Christ will be raised. That's referring to the general resurrection, not the rapture. Um, and then I looked at some of the verses in the Gospels where, you know, two are in the field, one's taking the other's left. Two in bed, one's taking the other's left. Two are grinding at the mill, one's taking the other's left. And the disciples say, to where, Lord? In other words, to where are they taken? And Jesus says, well, where, where the corpses are, there will the vultures be. Well, well, it sounds like I don't want to be one of the ones taken. I want to be left behind. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think it's Luke's version uh, of the same story. This is like in the days of Noah that, um, you know, the the people who didn't get in the ark were taken. Mm -hmm. It was Noah and his family who were left behind. 
They were taken. So it doesn't appear to be, I don't want to be taken according to the Gospels. So, you know, I looked at that and said, no, I I, I don't buy the the rapture of the church thing, pre-tribulation rapture of the church. And it appears that Revelation is apocalyptic literature. Now, beyond that, I don't know Mm -hmm. how to interpret it. Uh, Craig Keener has written a... um, a, um, commentary on Revelation. Others have written commentaries on Revelation. I have to spend some time on it. I just haven't devoted myself to eschatology. Mm. You know, as we talked about at the very beginning of this show, there is so much that one can know. I mean, I could devote all of my time to just staying current with the literature written on the Jesus resurrection and, and interacting with that, and that could be my full-time job. That's how focused this can get. And the more you get into the New Testament, there's just so much. We don't have all this time. Unfortunately, eschatology is something I just haven't investigated, so I can't answer that with more than I've just said. But I'm guessing you're pretty sure we should try to avoid reading Revelation in a literalistic way. Yeah, I don't take it in a literal way, but Mm -hmm. I don't know how it's supposed to be taken. That doesn't mean that nobody knows. You know, plenty has been written on this. And those interested should really just take some time and look at the literature, look at all the different opinions, and uh, see what they come out with. It's interesting. Our next question is about eschatology again. And for those who don't know, eschatology is the study of final things, end times, and such. And it's, is this the last question then? Oh, um, um, no, it's our next one. <laughs> okay. what, what does a micro lacuna? make of Jesus' prediction of the destruction of a temple in Jerusalem. And if possible, I would appreciate a brief additional word on the church's present use of the Olivet Discourse. Olivet Discourse, church's present use of it, I I, I don't know. Um, I guess I'd need a more specific, the the, uh, questioner to ask that with a little more specificity. Um, Maybe he is thinking about the whole left behind kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I just don't take it in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how, how is Jesus going to return? Is he going to return? Yes, I believe yeah. Jesus said he's going to return. Um, how is he going to return? I, I don't know. Uh, or what I mean, you know, what's it going to look like? When's it going to be? I have no idea. If Jesus didn't know the day or hour, I'm mm-hmm. certainly not going to know it. And the earliest Christians, including Paul, uh, at least for a while with Paul, uh, before writing Second Corinthians, in you know, by the time you get to the mid-50s, it appeared that these earliest Christians believed that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. And by the time you got to the mid-50s, Paul was seeming to come to the realization it was probably not going to be within their lifetimes. Mm-hmm. But it, there they were, you know, the words of Jesus still echoing in their in the air at that point. The people who had actually heard him, most of them still alive. And the way they interpreted Jesus was that he was going to come back within their lifetime. It was that clear to them, and then they changed their minds on it. So if they were confused and they were that close, I, you know, I just don't know that I'm going to be able to know that kind of stuff. Yeah. Do you think the Olivet Discourse, though, is involving in some way the destruction of Jerusalem? Oh, no question about it. Mm-hmm. No question about that. <clears throat> yeah, And I think we can definitely add in that we should always be suspicious of people who are claiming to know the date of Jesus' return or trying to use things to just say the establishment of a nation of Israel to try and pinpoint when it is that Jesus is going to return. Well, I think that part is self-evident. You know, there's been so many over Mm -hmm. the last several decades. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember remember someone, I've got the book on my shelf that said Jesus was coming back in the year 1988. Edgar Wisenant? 
I, I don't know. It's, it's been a little, it's been decades since I've looked at it, but it's on my shelf. You know, mm-hmm. I remember my father-in-law had it and he said, look, what do you think about this son? looks like Jesus coming back, uh, you know, next year. This is like, you know, the year, the year I got married in 1987. He said, it looks like Jesus coming back next year. I said, can I have that book, dad, or just hold on to it? Because, um, you know, I, I don't give that book any kind of weight at all or credibility. And so if he doesn't come back next year, I want that to hold on to that book. And then you had Harold Camping. What was it? A couple of years ago. Yeah. Said Jesus is coming back by a specific by midnight on a specific day, and of course he didn't. Mm. If Jesus didn't know the day or hour, I, I don't think that we're going to know it, and mm. um, or even the the general time period. And, and obviously, the New Testament writers and Paul thought that all the prophecies that needed to be fulfilled for Jesus to come back had already been fulfilled because they expected it to occur in their lifetime, and it didn't happen. So I just don't know that we're going to be able to come with that any kind of reasonable proximity of guessing when he's coming back. We need to be expecting his return, anticipating it, longing for his return, but um, and ready for it. But I don't know about predicting when it's going to happen. Okay, here's the next question here, and this will be the final one, which is fitting because it's actually the last question I have here. Is vicarious redemption an immoral doctrine? I don't think it is. I just think it's love. Well, let's uh, explain this for our listeners a bit more. When we're talking about vicarious redemption, what do we mean? Well, you know, the way I understand it would be, you know, like a substitutionary. Um, right. That, that Jesus pays the penalty for our sins. You mm-hmm. know, um, I've got an example in my mind. I just don't want to give away any names or anything like that because it's, you know, kind of personal for that other person. But we had a, we had someone we know who got a financial mess and several thousand dollars, you know, and this person just could not pay it. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was their own fault and we paid it for them. Mm-hmm. They didn't deserve for it to be paid. We mm-hmm. did it out of love for this person. And, um, so that was paid for it. Was that immoral for us? No, it wasn't immoral uh, for us to pay that. I'm not saying that we should do that all the time, but I'm saying in this case, this person was very repentant. Um, so acknowledged that what they did was wrong, acknowledged this was their responsibility, but could not meet it. We paid it. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think that just shows that that's an illustration of love. And that shows the extreme love God had for us. I don't think it's immoral. I think it's very moral. I think some people would look at it though and say <clears throat> it's what they call cosmic child abuse to send your own son to die on a cross. Well, we got to remember Jesus was very willing, and if the scriptures are correct, right. you know he is—he's part of the Godhead. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's maybe. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh, how would I say it? Um, I'm just thinking off the top of my head now, but let's suppose that, you know, I'm a soldier and, um, you know, I've got uh, from an injury or something, I I need to get amputated or else it's going to get gangrene and I'm going to die and I'm out on the field. Well, um, I'd say, well, go ahead, take my foot off or take my hand off or or something like that. Mm. But if I'm the hand, I might be going, whoa, what are you talking about? Uh You know, yeah, I guess... Hey, if at all possible, can't you find some other way to fix this with antibiotics or something? I mean, if you need to take it off, then let's go ahead and take the hand off. 
but if at all possible, I'd like to avoid this. And that's just Jesus. He was the hand there. Um, mm. So, but he was willing. So, mm. I mean, I, I, I don't see that as, it's not like I would say to my son, Zach, hey, Zach, um, you know, I want you to go out and be tortured and treated horribly and rejected and killed for a person that I don't even know and care too much about in downtown Atlanta. It's, mm. it's not that way. Yeah. You know, Jesus and the Father were one in essence and their nature and in unity. And so Jesus, you know, of course he didn't want to go through that kind of suffering. Who would? But he was willing to do it out of God's love for us. And I don't see any moral problem with that. I, th- I think that's just a, a misunderstanding about the nature and character of God. Well, Mike, it looks like you've answered all the questions here. I uh, I hope this was a fun time for you on here doing this. Oh, this was great, Nick. I always enjoy being on your show. you got a fantastic podcast. I've just had some great people, and I'm just honored to be um, one of the people you've had on your program. Mm-hmm. Well, if uh, someone wants to find out more about you and all the work that you're doing and such, you have a blog, a website. Where do they go? Well, you just go to risenjesus.com. You know, I've got uh, videos of my lectures and debates, some short videos I call musings that just take some basic ideas and throw them out there. Some of them are kind of funny and and interesting. Um, I've got several articles and, you know, things like that. So that's a a number of things that they could um, do to see what I'm up to. Uh, Do you have any uh, final message today that you'd like to leave with a deeper waters audience? Not in particular. But um, I appreciate what you're doing, Nick. You know, we're all doing this for the kingdom. The people Mm -hmm. who are your listeners are probably most of them are are Christians and they're listening because they're interested in this kind of stuff. And this is uh, really interesting things. I I guess I could tell a a real short story uh, that was relayed to me by a dear friend of mine named Amy Ponce. Okay. And Amy told me that when she was in college, she doesn't remember a whole lot from a lot of her college days, but she said she remembered Luke Timothy Johnson of Emory University coming and lecturing on the Dead Sea Scrolls. And at the very end of that, he said, you know, studying this kind of stuff is so much fun. And we can look at so many different questions and challenges and problems in this. But at the end of the day, we have to be careful to keep it all in perspective and that our relationship with Christ is the most important thing. Otherwise, we make the mistake of a man who goes up in the attic, having been married for years, decades, and he goes up in the attic and he finds a book with love letters written between he and his wife. And he sits there reading the love letters all the while, ignoring the gentle knocking at the attic door of his wife who wants to come in and be with him. Mm -hmm. And she said she doesn't remember anything else from that lecture on the Dead Sea Scrolls from decades ago. Um, but she does remember that story. And in that way, we just have to be careful that we are keep our focus on our relationship with God and always having that develop. It's fun to research these things and talk about the tough questions. It's a lot of fun. I've devoted my life to it. We'll continue yeah. to. And when we, when we get together, that's what we spend a lot of our time doing. Absolutely. Um, but we don't want to neglect our relationship with Christ in the process. Well, um, Mike, it's been great having you on here again, and I hope we'll see you again here sometime for time number four. 
<laughs> you bet, Nick. I'm always happy to come on. God yeah. bless you, son. Yeah, I'd like to remind everyone that uh, next week we're going to have Glenn Stanton coming on, talking about why marriage matters. So if marriage is important to you, be listening next week. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing